Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. I was going to say Matthew. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we'll be looking this morning at verse 28 through verse 34. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, this morning as we come before you, I I ask you, Lord, that you would just uh, clear our minds, help us to uh, calm our hearts, and uh, put our eyes upon the word of God so we can understand it, and then also, Lord, so we can evaluate if we're doing it or not, or to what level we're doing it. I just pray, Lord, you would help us to do that today, for I know that found in this text is one of those important passages in all of God's Word. And I, Lord, I pray, pray you would just impress it upon our minds and hearts so we can every day um, do what you say, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so in Mark chapter twelve, we're looking at um, we're looking at a. Remember, this is still Tuesday in the Passion Week. It's been a long day for the Lord. There's been one controversy. This is actually considered the controversy section in um, the Gospel of Mark. There's one controversy after another, and it's interesting the way that Mark actually writes this Gospel. Uh, it's like we've been there. It's like we, we, we were in the crowd when one uh, wave slammed against our Lord and another wave came after that and it slammed against our Lord. And every single one that came against him, Jesus just showed his humility. He showed his knowledge. He showed his wisdom And he showed that his authority could not be rivaled even by the highest political and religious bodies of his day. So this morning we meet another person that uh, approaches Jesus. Uh, This person is an expert in the law. Uh, And of course, if you notice in verse number 28, It says this in Mark chapter 12. It says, one of the scribes came. One of the scribes came. Now remember, the scribes were, they were the PhDs. They were the experts in the Torah. And they were capable of issuing binding decisions with their interpretations of Scripture. Of course, these teachers of the Torah had a reputation reputation of honor, they would, uh, people would call them rabbi or great one. They usually had a seat at most tables if they were invited somewhere. Scribes were legal jurists. These scribes really combined the office of uh, Torah professor, teacher, moralist, and civil lawyer all in one package. They were very, very powerful influential leaders. And so it must be that the group of 
scribe sent one representative scribe uh, to Jesus. Matter of fact, in Scripture, there's only one positive reference to scribes in Scripture, and it's found right here in the Gospel of Mark in the verses that we're going to look at. There's 18 negative references to scribes because they were always portrayed, for the most part, as antagonists of Jesus' mission, his message, and everything that he was teaching, uh, his very uh, teaching they were against. So the scribes were occupied with things, by this time, infinitely small. Scribal teaching was occupied with mint and anise, would come in in lengths of fringes on a particular garment. They were uh, concerned about washing cups and platters, about washing your hands before you eat. They even were concerned about the particular quarter seconds when the new moon and the Sabbaths began. They were into all that detail, and no scribe ever gave an interpretation or judgment on his own. He would always begin in his teaching that there is a teacher that said this, or would quote some authority of his particular day or his particular sect. Again, they have put so many fences up around the Word of God that they really never get to the Word of God. And that becomes a danger of of making rules on how you ought to live as a believer and then following those rules without the very principles of the word of god guiding what you really the way you live so in this passage of scripture this particular scribe did not seem to come to jesus with any trick questions he became interested in Jesus because he was one of those in the crowd who carefully listened to the arguments and the disputes being brought against Jesus. In other words, his encounter with Jesus is very amiable. In fact, the scripture gives us three words that describe this lawyer's demeanor. If you notice in verse number 28 of chapter 12, it says, first of all, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. So he came hearing. He was listening to the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees disputing with Jesus. And then secondly, uh, the second action word is, is he was recognizing something. It says in verse 28, and recognizing that he had answered them well. So in other words, he was thinking Jesus answered his opponents with excellence and had a skill of handling scripture that could not be ignored. And then a third action was that he inquired. It says there that he asked him something. In verse 28, in other words, he thought this was his chance to ask Jesus a question that had been disputed for years. And he was wondering, listen, if this guy called Jesus can answer these hard, hard questions, 
with such excellence and such respect for truth, I cannot pass this up. I have to ask him about this question. And so the question is found in the end of verse number 28. This is what the scribe asked. Notice, he says, he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, is that important? Uh, yes, it, it is not only important to the scribe, it's important to every single one of us. And I said in my prayer that this is probably the most important passage of Scripture in all of Scripture. So that means it, it should be very uh, interesting to us and helpful in examining ourselves when we look at the details of how Jesus answers this question. Now, either he is asking, what quality in a divine precept is it that makes it rank as first of all? Or he is asking, which one specific precept must be rated as the very first? Now, of course, one has to ask, why is even he even asking that question? Well, remember, the rabbi said that there were 613 commandments, 248 positive and 365 negative. Of these, some were important or they would, would be called heavy commandments. And some were less important, and those were called light commandments. Now, how should one decide out of those 613 commandments? Which one comes first? Which comes second? Which comes third? You know, is that important or is that not important? Well, see, should they be picked by the severity of and, and punishment connected with them? Should, they, should the commandments about sacrifice and worship be first? What about ones connected to the Sabbath laws or the, di- the dietary regulations or, or dress or circumcision and so on and so forth? It went on. See, the essence of this question is which commandment supersedes everything? and is incumbent upon all humanity. Not just the Pharisees, not just the scribes, not just the Sadducees, and not just any disciple. What commandment is binding on all humanity? See, Jesus answers the scribe directly. He answers him directly from Scripture, And he answers them from a scripture that he would be very, very aware of. He answered with what the Jews call the Shema. In the Hebrew, it means to hear. The Shema was a staple scripture for the Jew, and it is found in Deuteronomy. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy and look at it there first. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, and verse number 4 through 6, and then verse 7 to 9, 
So this was a very important scripture for the Jew. And notice what it says here. The first word it says in verse number 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel. That's where they get the word Shema from. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So that's what the Shema is. In fact, these scriptures were so important to Israel, parents were instructed to hold them in high regard before their families. Look down at verse number 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, in other words, every day and in every place a Hebrew was to be exposed to these life-giving truths. They could never forget this. And yes, these passages were so important in Israel's history and in Hebrew scriptures that they were put in little boxes called phylacteries and strapped to one's forehead or to one's wrist. In fact, when you're, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, if you have been there, you'll see that uh, people are walking around all the time with these, these uh, leather straps that strap them right to their forehead. It's a little box. And, and to the wrist, and it, it wraps around their arms so they can't fall off. And inside that, a box is usually the Shema, this scripture right here from Deuteronomy, so they would not forget it. In fact, their doorposts were to be lined with these particular truths, and their gates, everywhere they went and entered into, they were to be reminded of this particular passage of scripture. So if the Shema, the Shema, was so important in the life of Israel, how did they drift away from it? Why wasn't it that important? How come this scribe could not even answer his own question? Actually, Jesus kind of answered the question already back in Mark chapter 7 verse 6 through 9, where he says, he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So in the sense that that's, that's the reason why they have forgotten what was the most important thing in the life of not only the Israelite, but the life of the Christian, the life of the believer in Christ. What is the most important thing for you and I? Well, it has to be what Jesus says here. Now turn back to Mark chapter 12 and notice in verse number 29, here is the first there's two, he asked for one precept, he asked for the most important, Jesus says, I'm going to give you two precepts. The first 
commandment or precept incumbent upon the disciples, and yes, all humanity is this one, to love, love to the Lord, our God, is to fill the sphere of the whole heart of the human being. For Jesus actually, again, answers describe with, as I said, two precepts, and notice the first one in verse number 29 and 30, Jesus answered the four, the it says, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So he says, first of all, in that particular command, he says, listen, first, we have to love the Lord for who he is. And who is he? It says in Scripture, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. See, the names for God ex- express different things about him. The word Lord actually is the word Yahweh. That means the unchanging, promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. All right, When he makes a promise, he keeps it. He is faithful to those who are his children. He is faithful to his people. And then he uses another word, the word God, which is the word Elohim, and that means the God who employs all his power in behalf of his children, in behalf of the nation of Israel in this case. So he is the one, the living one, the absolute God. He is God. He alone is God, and there is no other. That's what we need to know about God first of all and foremost, and to know the one and the only true God in all his greatness and in all his power and all his loving kindness and his mercy and his grace and his justice is also to turn to him with your whole being, to worship him alone out of, out really, out from your whole heart. And of course, to always keep in mind the danger of idolatry, the danger of having a double-minded heart, a heart that is split in two different directions. God does not want us to live in that with that kind of mind and that kind of heart. He wants us to live with a heart that first understands who he is in his character. And then secondly, that leads to, in, ver- in verse number 30, you shall love the Lord your God. In other words, the love to love the Lord with all you are. To love the Lord with all you are. Now, how does he break that down in the scripture? Well, to love him out from your whole heart. All right? And what is the heart? The heart is the center of our being, really the real personality, who we really are. And then, of course, to love the Lord thy God from your whole soul. That is really the self-conscious part of your life. And then to love the Lord from out of your whole mind. That is the power that we have to reason. The place where we have thoughts, ideas, convictions. And if you notice, if you did not notice... Jesus is really displaying his authority right here while he is talking to the scribe because he adds one 
Deuteronomy only had three. He adds a, a fourth one. And the fourth one is that we are to worship God of our, out, of, out of our whole mind. All right? He adds a fourth response from those who are hearing what he is saying, that the Lord, to love the Lord God with one's whole mind and one's whole understanding, that our very thoughts are to be so ordered that our thoughts are worshiping God on a regular basis. So you can't be somewhere else in your mind when it comes to worshiping God. You have to be focused on who he is and what he's done to actually carry out these passages. This, this very precept that is binding on all of us. And of course he says it leads to the, the uh, next one, out of your whole strength. That that's the power we have to do things. The power of will to now decide to do something. That we're to love God out of that. In fact, when we love God this way, love for God usually results in devotion to him, trust in him, praise to him. It comes out of you. It flows out of you. Love for God also leads to obedience and to service. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments, right? That is something that you and I really need to consider quite seriously. But it also leads to service, that I obey God and I serve. Because my life is no longer my own. My life is the Lord. So whatever the Lord wants me to do, I want to do. I'm not there just to sit on my duff. I'm there to do something for God. But I'm there to do it for God because I love him. Not out of, I must do that. I want to do that. See, that's a a tremendous shift from what was being thought thought of in many of the Old Testament organizations like the scribes and the Pharisees and, and, those, and, and those people, the Sadducees. And of course, love for God is connected to drawing near to God. Even James brings this up when he says in uh, the epistle of James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. So what is always hedging against putting this particular passage of Scripture into into practice is that I am not double-minded as a believer. Can't serve God in money. Can't serve God in possessions. Can't serve God and have other gods. You understand that, right? There could be only one God that we serve. And he, he, he wants our full and complete devotion. Other than that, it is not worship. Other than that, I don't know what you're doing or what I'm doing when I get into that particular state. Matter of fact, to love to the Lord, our God, is to fill the sphere of our whole heart. And that means every part of our heart is to be open to the Lord. It's amazing when you go back to the Old Testament, when you think about some of the most reforming kings, or one of the most reforming kings in the Old Testament is King Josiah. Josiah understood that Israel drifted away from this particular precept. And once he identified this in the word of God, he wanted to reform the nation. But the nation was so far gone 
He couldn't do it. But he sure tried to do it. And it says in the word of God that King Josiah turned to the Lord and tried to turn the nation to the Lord, but could not do it. And this is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 23. And it says, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind and might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And, but the nation didn't. This is what it says about the nation. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his, his anger burned against Judah because all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. In other words, that they had gone so far it was too late. And what, where did they move from? They moved from this precept. This is where we all go wrong in our Christian walks. We get, we get pulled in directions that take our whole focus on something other than it may be good, as far as good is, uh, but it's not what the Lord wants us to do. It has actually taken us away from our attention on the Lord and has put it on something else. You know what? When I look at a passage like this, too, it begs questions that come up to examine ourselves. Just asking yourself, do we enjoy spending time with the Lord? Do we actually enjoy it? Not, you know, do we do it, but do we enjoy it? Hopefully you do it. Also, do you have an ever-expanding, growing affection for the Lord to tell him that you actually love him? And are you increasing in doing things that please him? Are you anxious to tell others about the Lord and to communicate to them his gracious plan of salvation? No, it was Benedict Arnold. Everybody heard of Benedict Arnold. He was, of course, that's equal to traitor. He was one of George Washington's key men in the Continental Army. But somewhere down the line, he got double-minded. And instead of being loyal to the Continental Army and to his commanding officer, he began to make bargains with the British around 1779. And, of course, they offered him position, they offered him authority, and they offered him a large sum of money. So what did he do? He took it. And instead of fighting for the colonists, he fought against them. And why did he do that? He did it because his heart was now divided. See, that could happen very quickly in our walk with the Lord. I tell you this, loving God means you don't have a divided heart. Loving God means you have a single-minded heart. You have a single-minded devotion. And this becomes an all-important precept and command in all of our lives. We cannot get away from this. This is something that should be before us every single day of our life. How are we doing in this area? Are we worshiping God like this? Are we giving him everything we have? Now, that leads to the second one. They both go together. This man was not necessarily asking 
for this particular precept, but Jesus gave it. In fact, in verse number 31 of Mark chapter 12, the second important precept incumbent on all humanity is one you have and I have, have not you, you, you and I have heard it before, love your neighbor as yourself. For look what it says in verse 31. The second is this: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, Jesus, if you didn't notice again, Jesus actually combines two commandments that were not bound together before. Because you don't find this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You find this one in Leviticus chapter 19. So Jesus takes two things and puts them together for the first time. In the mind of the Jew, in the mind of the believer, he combines the love that one should have for God with the love that spills over from that relationship to the love we ought to have for one another, to our neighbor. And the reason why he brings this up for this scribe is because the Jews considered their neighbor to only be Jews. Non-Israelites were not considered to be neighbors. Your enemies were not considered to be neighbors. Jesus changed and expanded the idea of what it meant to love your neighbor. In fact, Luke chapter 10 really brings this out. Without turning there, you know the story. It's the story about the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus, in that context, under what's happening here, says to them, gives them a story. That's the way the Lord taught. He gave them a story. And he said, listen, uh, there was a, it, he, first of all, he says, he gives this precept, and then he's, and he said to him, you have, he tells the scribe, you have answered correctly, giving back to him what he said about the Shema. And then he says, listen, the scribe says to him, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, replies to him, with him with the stories that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead on the road and by chance a priest was going down on the road and when he saw him he passed on the other side and likewise a levite Also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. And then it says there, and a Samaritan came. Now, a Samaritan was really rejected by the Jews because they were kind of half-Jews because they interbreeded and kind of like were no longer pure. So they were not considered neighbors anymore. And so the Samaritan, though, when he came upon him, he felt compassion on him. And he bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, and put and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. And Jesus says to him, Which of thee, which of, of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Well, of course. He said very clearly, those who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus says, go and do the same. 
Now, that means this, that if he was connected to Israel and should have already been loving God the way he ought to have been loving God, he would have done the second part. But like I said, Jesus now definitely combines these two from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4 and 5, or, or chapter 6, verse 4, 4 and 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, in other words, that this kind of love is measured in at least two ways. This kind of love is measured by the care that you have for yourself. All right? Now, if you notice what it says in the Scripture, it says very very clearly that you are to love, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that is not self-centeredness here. That's not what it's talking about. As you extend your care of yourself, measure your love for your neighbor by the love that you already have for yourself. Because we have plenty of love for ourselves, don't we? Don't you take care of yourself? Don't you wash yourself, feed yourself? Don't you get good things for yourself? Don't you watch out and make sure that you're safe and that you're doing things to yourself that are benefiting yourself? See, everybody does that. Nobody really, uh, everybody's involved with taking care of themselves. And so, in other words, he is saying to you and I and to this scribe, listen, you are to live in a way to care for others with the same consideration that we extend to ourselves. That's not hard to figure out, right? There are some things you like. Right? You like to be treated in a certain way. Why, why would you think someone else doesn't want to be treated the same way you'd like to? Why would you think that way? You like certain things. You like certain foods. All right, And so other people like certain foods and have certain tastes. We, we need to recognize someone and respect them so they're taken care of. Now what is amazing is that If I were to say to you, listen, break down, make me a list on some of the things that show you and I what it really means to take care of our neighbor or love our neighbor. We would probably have different lists. Maybe there may be some similar things we may put on that list. But you know that the Lord already gave the list in Leviticus? Let's look back there for a minute. Look at Leviticus chapter 19. This is where the passage comes from in verse number 18. But if you back up to verse number 10, you're going to find that in this passage of Scripture, there's a pretty good breakdown on what it means to love one's neighbor. In fact, this list is based on the Ten Commandments. And notice what it says. Look at verse number 10 of Leviticus chapter 19. He says the first thing is this. Take care of the poor. Look what it says. You, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. And look at how he says it. I am the, I am the Lord your God. Verse number 10. 
Second thing, verse number 11. You shall not steal nor deal falsely. What's the second thing? How do you love your neighbor? Don't steal from them. Right? Is that something that we can actually do? Yes. Also, thirdly, don't lie to them. It says in verse number 11, nor lie to one. And then verse 12, and you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. That's how you love somebody. You don't lie to them. Tell them the truth. Right? It's a lot easier to tell the truth than to tell a lie. You know that, right? Because if you tell a lie, two months later, you have to go back and figure out which, how you lied, and you're never going to get it right. But if you tell the truth, it'll always be the truth. Right? And is the truth harder to tell? Yes. But it's always the best thing, and it honors God, and it shows you love your neighbor, and you love the person who's standing in front of you. That's who your neighbor is, who's near you. Neighbor means those who are near me, right, around me, those who I rub elbows with, those who I have contact with. It's not just, it is the church first, that's the first and foremost, but it's everyone as a believer Right? And then in verse number 13, how do I love my neighbor? Fair business dealings. Look at verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Don't withhold wages from somebody if you're in business. Do fair business dealings. I think uh, car salesmen may have a hard time with that one. I never like high-pressure salesmen. You know, I always go in there saying, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't do That's it. Give me the bottom line. They don't like me. Third thing, or next thing, is to care for the deaf and blind. In verse number 14, you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Verse 15, deal justly with all. It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And then, of course, verse 16, avoid slander. You shall not go about as a slander among your people. And also, verse number 16, not to jeopardize the life of your neighbor. It says there, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You're looking out for their safety as well as your own safety. And then, of course, in verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. And then, verse 17, rebuke your neighbor when necessarily, only for his good. You may surely reprove your neighbor but shall not incur sin because of him. And then verse number 18, don't take revenge or bear a grudge against others. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall, here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what the Lord connects in in the gospel of Mark and in the gospels. He connects these two things. And so a, Very simply, this is what it means to love our neighbor. 
Do we want to be treated like all these things? All of us want to be treated like this. Well, then treat other people like that. And when you do that, you actually exemplify what it means to love God and then what it means to love your neighbor. All right, and of course, the Lord adds something to that in the Gospels. He said that even love your what? Enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He goes way beyond whatever anybody would ever imagine. He says, well, pray for my enemies. Love my enemies if they're hungry. Give them something to eat. What? Yes. Because when we do that, we show the love of God. We show that our hearts are connected to the Lord. See, the, the quality and high character of both these precepts, these commandments are, are alike. None can be placed ahead of these two, neither can they be reversed. The one about God must come first, and the other about man must come second. They cannot be reversed. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew adds this, on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. So this becomes the most important thing for every one of us right here. These two things. These show how you're doing. Now, it was one commentator who said when these two are combined, they in fact help us hedge against two dangers. And that's the danger of mysticism. Mysticism would be something like this, being detached from the love of God. I love God, but I got something else going on over here. I'm detached from it. So it helps us to hedge against that. And then a second danger it helps us to hedge against is humanism. See, reference to human beings without reference to God. That's why you can go and do humanitarian projects all over the world, feed people all the world, and if you don't go there with God and with the gospel, you are just humanistic. That's all you are. So we have to have both we have to go them showing them the love of God by what we're doing, but also by the message that we bring them that they have not yet heard. So in other words, love for God releases the love of God in our lives. First John says this to us in chapter 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, can, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. But a second thing that comes up concerning this particular message is found back in our passage in the Gospel of Mark, and it's found in verse 32 and 33, and it's what the scribe brings up. It, it's, it's really profound what's going on in the scribe's mind. Because in the Jewish mind, the most important thing you could do to show that you love God was to prepare your sacrifices to confess your sin 
and to bring your sin, your, your, your animal to the priest so he can sacrifice it, so you can be forgiven, so your relationship with God can be restored. So, so in his mind, it was the doing part of it alone. That was foremost in his mind. See, not only this kind of love is measured by the care that you have for yourself, but this kind of love reveals the real heart behind sacrificial duty. See, the, the scribe responds to Jesus in a, an agreeable manner because Jesus answered him excellently with his heart, actually with, with his answer being based in the truth of Scripture. He was amazed by this. So the scribe, what he does is he restates what's already been said. And if you notice in verse number 32 and 33, it says this, the scribe said to him, now the scribe's talking back to Jesus, right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is, notice, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. That was a profound thought. In other words, he was getting it. You understand that? He was getting what Jesus was trying to say. He was getting, maybe for the first time, what the Old Testament in Leviticus was actually, in Deuteronomy was actually teaching. See, these sacrifices, the, the, actually the scribe sees that there is something more that ranks beyond burnt offerings and slaughter sacrifices, which was the center of worship for the Jews. These sacrifices, all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, stand for all the altar offerings. These are the kind that were consumed by fire and not eaten by the worshiper. That means... These were solely given to God. So the scribe agrees with Jesus that burnt offerings and sacrifice must yield a right relationship with God and a moral relationship with others to be correct, to actually worship the Lord. He was getting it. Now, what was the Lord doing with this guy? You know what he was doing with him? He was reeling him in, in a a very kind and gentle way. And this scribe was being captured by the truth. You don't don't see this in other uh, places in the Gospels beside this one. This This is an amazing passage of Scripture. So, in other words, that this kind of love brings one near and into the kingdom of God. It brings one right up to the precipice of the kingdom of God, to the gate of the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus do? He offers a personal note to him. And I want you to notice what he says to the scribe. See, the scribe had his mind on what Jesus said, and he grasped it. And then notice in verse number 34, and when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That must have been, now that couple things could have been going on in his mind. 
Number one, I thought I was in the kingdom of God. I thought that's what I've been doing this whole time. But Jesus says, no, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In, in, in other words, Jesus is saying, don't stand outside the kingdom of God. Come all the way over, all right? Take the next step. This is a gospel message here. This, this guy's getting what it means to worship God. And so the Lord tells him, take the next step. To see that he did not love God, nor his neighbor perfectly, and that's what it should bring us to the place that we really don't love God perfectly or the way we ought to. We don't really love our neighbor the way that we ought to. And, and in his case, it should reveal his sin. See, God's one solution for his sin problem is going to be answered in just a few days. Right? Remember, it's Tuesday. Thursday and Friday is coming, right? And then Saturday, Sunday is coming. So see, Jesus is leading him to the place where he's right at the gate of the kingdom of God. And of course, by the end of the Passion Week, Jesus would accomplish only what the Lamb of God could accomplish. How do I get into the kingdom of God? How does anybody, how does, how does a Jew, how does uh, you know a Muslim, how does anybody get into the kingdom of God? They have to come through Jesus Christ. That's how you get into the kingdom of God. You can't get in it any other way. In the, in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, I already in, introduced to you different people groups. Remember, there was the insider group and there was the outsider group. The scribes were already documented as official opponents of Jesus, critics of everything that he had said and done. However, this scribe was on the verge of becoming an insider. He was sitting at Jesus' feet and really listening. Entrance to the kingdom of God was in his sight. So what does it mean to take the next step? Well, it means exactly what we started out the Gospel of Mark in. Repent, right? Repent from your sin and then believe to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. He is saying to them, no, it's not you're close to the kingdom of God. Try harder. It's not that. You can't try to get somewhere you can't get if you try harder. Rather, entering the kingdom of God is not a matter of hard duty, but a matter of heart devotion. Obeying rules and regulations will never get anyone into the kingdom of God because we never measure up to God's perfect standard. No, we need a new heart. By coming to the one who can bring a sinner and sinners into the kingdom of God, we must do it by coming to Jesus. Well, Jesus is right there. The only thing in Scripture is that it never says that he came. I'm hoping he did. I'm hoping after Jesus rose again, he was in that group that came and became one of those influential religious rulers that came into the kingdom of God and now began to teach correctly the word of God. 
See, believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God. That he is God's own way of salvation. That Jesus, that God sent Jesus to the cross. That God put all our sins on him and punished them in him. See, that's what this man and we had to believe to enter the kingdom of God. But remember, the kingdom of God is not a matter of human effort. No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting trust in Christ alone. Your response must be repent and believe. Yesterday we had a funeral. Sandy Black, a memorial service. Sandy Black, if, you, if some of you remember her, she used to come in here with her two oxygen tanks, sit in the middle there. And um, I remember in 2002, uh, I don't exactly know how we, I had contact with, with Sandy Black, but I, we visited her in her trailer home. She lived in a trailer home back then, and I, I shared the gospel with her. And uh, she was not happy about it the first time we went. But I asked her, can we come back again? And she said, sure. So we did. And the second time, though, from the time we went the first time, the time we came back the second time, God was working on her heart the whole time. And so I shared with her again, and she trusted Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she, from that day forward, really, she'd live for the, she followed the Lord and lived for the Lord until the day that she actually went into the presence of God, graduated, right? And she's now face-to-face with him. So, see... It took that for Sandy to repent and believe. It takes it for all of us to repent and believe. And it's really never by anything we can do. It's something that God offers us by his grace. But the point in our passages here that God requires worship that comes from our heart. And it is not divided in any way. And as we worship God like that, we will also love our neighbor. It flows from it. You can't reverse it. It must be love God first, love neighbor second. You can't put them in reverse because it won't be the kind of love that God really wants you to have. So to be in the crowd, to be in the in-group, you can't waffle on the imperatives for entry into the kingdom of God. Once you enter, you will also be the group who is sitting around Jesus, learning from him, worshiping him, and growing in love for God and others. That's what will take place. Now, when this encounter was over, I want you to notice what happens in verse 34, and now I'm done. Look what happens. After that, this is the second part of the verse. It says, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. What does he do? He shuts their mouths. They have nothing else to ask him. You know why? Because they don't want to get entrapped by how skillful he was with Scripture to answer them back. Because they've been also, you know, they've been observing this all along. So you see what we need to do today is we need to adjust our priorities and put what is first, first, and put what is second, second. 
We need to worship God wholeheartedly. We need to serve man with a sincere heart. Because you know what? This is the whole duty of humankind. This is especially the duty of the church. For us to love God and show that love of God to those who God brings around us. And of course, that love is also going to bring us to open up our mouth to share the gospel with them so they can really know God like we know God. That's what it's all about. So that's what we have to do today. We have to really look at ourselves. How are we doing? How are we all doing in that? And to see if there's any divided division in our heart, anything that's pulling us in a direction away from loving God like this. And I pray as we do that, that we would make some adjustments and get on track. And every day we wake up, these scriptures would be foremost on our mind because everything taught in the word of God hinges on these things. So we can't get ever get away from them. And God's people said what? Let's pray. Lord, this morning I thank you, Lord, for the word of God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that contained in it are things that we need to know. Contained in it are things that we do know and need to be reminded of. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that you may really grab our hearts. That we can honestly evaluate ourselves. Especially in this area of, Lord, of these two important commandments. That are so connected to one another. And I ask you, Lord, as we evaluate ourselves, we would would be able to make the changes. So we do not have a divided heart. But we have a heart that is, is wholeheartedly worshiping you. Mind, soul, strength. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we do that, from our life may flow a love for others that possibly we never were involved with before. And so, Lord, make the changes in our heart that you need to so these things take place. And I pray, Lord, if someone does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they may come and repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for eternal salvation. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us in all these matters to worship you from our heart. And I ask that in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.